Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. In this episode, I continue reading from my memoir, Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. Still waiting on word about my ordination, I begin putting down roots in the country parish of Cookstown, where I'd been appointed the oxymoronic student in charge In truth, while someone imagined me being in charge, I was still very much the student, learning how to be a minister, learning how to get by in a small town, and learning how to live the ethical life I would be preaching from the pulpit. There was much to learn, and all the time in the world. This is Chapter 6, Part 2. And just like way back in the days of old, As I settled into my new church and community, all my early memories of church sprang to life. Alf and Grace Sperry, members of my congregation and neighbors across the lane, became my surrogate grandparents. Alf would stand with me, surveying my garden. It was Alf who spotted my asparagus. I see your asparagus is coming up, he said one day. I couldn't see it. Where, I asked. Right there, he said. He pointed to a long line of tiny green shoots beginning at the toes of my shoes. Really? Asparagus? Just like that? Grace would invite me over for Sunday dinner, English style. Roast beef, Yorkshire pudding, the works. Afterward, we'd push our chairs away from the table. Alf would go get his accordion, and I would sit at their untuned piano and accompany him by ear on old hymns and war songs. Every day I would walk into town to pick up my mail at the post office. If I timed things right, I could do a good portion of my parish visiting along the way, sometimes with little more than a good morning and... How are things going today? When I had church business to do, I would drop in on Frances, the church treasurer and chair of the cemetery board. She lived with her mother on the main street in the heart of the town, right across from the post office, where nothing and no one escaped her notice. Frances was wheelchair-bound from the early onset of rheumatoid arthritis. Her spine bent her forward in her chair and her gnarled hands were set for gripping a pencil or a book, but for little else. Her movements were stiff and limited in range, but her mind was as sharp as barbed wire. She lived vicariously through paperback romances and murder mysteries, but also through the gossip of the town, in which she took a particular delight. 
Her eyes would light up as she prepared to deliver the latest delicious morsel of overheard news. One thread Francis was thrilled to follow was the ongoing spat between bombastic Dr. McFarlane, who walked around as if he owned the town, and Al Nixon, the quiet handyman who went house to house fixing it. In one installment, Dr. McFarlane had hired Al Nixon to fix his furnace. Returning from his clinic over the noon hour, the doctor found Al sitting where he had left him earlier that morning. Dr. McFarlane tore a strip off him. "'What the hell am I paying you for, Al?' he roared. Al Nixon took his time before he answered. "'You're paying me,' he said, "'to think.' Francis chortled over that one. Then it was down to business, financial business. Francis would spread out her notes and her ledgers and set me straight on who was who and what was what and who was supposed to be doing what. She went faster than I could keep up. Her mother in her nineties would bring us muffins from the oven and make pots of tea, wiping her hands on her printed apron. As I got to know my flock, I had to wonder what was wrong with Dave Ward. Couldn't he see from the lives of these people that they were already saved, whatever he meant by that? That they didn't need his sex talks and his yes-or-no principles? That heaven had already come down to earth and was right here in this little village of real flesh-and-blood, God-bearing people? They were fine just the way they were. Whatever he thought he was doing, he'd been judging them and driving them away. I was doing something else. I was loving them and bringing them back. The Cookstown congregations had suffered under Dave Ward. They were embarrassed by his sermons and resentful of being shoved aside by the rush of young people coming up from the city. Many stayed on to wait him out, Someday, like all the clergy who had come before him, he'd be gone. But others were too hurt by Dave to stay. Keith, who had been instrumental in the renovations at the rectory, was elevated by Dave for a time as his right-hand man. Where Dave was flamboyant, quick with his talk and impulsive in his actions, Keith was slow, steady, and silent. The perfect compliment. For almost a year, Keith was always at Dave's side. His job was to discern the spirits of whoever Dave was talking to, like a spiritual Geiger counter. He would read the motivations of the other person, the deeper dynamics Dave claimed not always to be able to discern for himself. And then one day, Keith was unceremoniously dumped, either because of some perceived failing or because someone new had come along to take his place. Keith had no way to process Dave's rejection of him, a hurt so deep and so public. Fern, his wife, felt it too. She was built differently, with a facility for self-expression. She would hold on to things, big or small, to hurts and disappointments, both hers and her husband's, sharpening them in her mind until just the right moment, a day of retribution. You didn't want to be the target when she let fly, but there I was, like a bullseye. 
I had attended my first potluck supper at St. John's in Cookstown before knowing how to pace myself. I had some of Irma's jellied salad along with thick slices of ham while being sure to take one or two of Gladys's home-baked buns and piling some potato salad onto my plate as well. There were still three or four pies to sample for dessert, Nanaimo bars and plates of homemade cookies, all served under the watchful eyes of the cooks and the bakers whose skill was on display. I was young, and I had a big appetite, but not that big. I'd tried to finish the food on my plate, but I was down to a slab of lasagna that was simply a bridge too far. I placed my napkin over the remains and let it slide off the plate into the trash. Months later, Fern took me to task about something unrelated, something I had said in a sermon. She stated her case. Jesus was not like a superhero, she said, indignant at the thought. Fair enough, I acknowledged, though I had been talking more to the kids than to their parents at the time. She wasn't appeased, and out it all came. And that's not all, Brian Pearson, she said, her words pointed like darts. I saw you at the potluck supper, how you ate what everyone else brought, and threw mine into the trash. What could I possibly say? I felt horrible. Hurt this toxic is not easy to root out. It festers somewhere down deep below the surface. As much as I want to say that I came along after Dave, bringing light and life to the people, to some... I just offered the excuse they needed, finally, to leave the church altogether. Sometimes the role of an interim minister is likened to that of a garbage man. Your job is to take the trouble away and to present a clean slate to the new permanent minister coming in after you. But I was saddened that that meant Keith and Fern. I hadn't wanted to throw anything away. I think the best work I did in Cookstown was not so much what I did for the congregation, but what I let them do for me. They knew I had recently suffered a marriage breakup, just as they had too in their own way with Dave's hurtful departure. We never talked openly about this, but I think when we all dropped our guard and allowed ourselves to be loved by one another, that was the opportunity the Spirit needed to move in and mend a few broken hearts, mine included. Sometimes that healing carried a burden of its own, though it was the burden of abundance. Like the Sunday after church, I went to Grace and Alf's for lunch. Only it wasn't lunch. It was a full-out feast. A roast chicken, mashed potatoes, sweet peas, gravy, olives, and fresh-baked buns with butter. I had seconds of everything. And then Grace brought out dessert in two courses. Hot peach pie right from the oven, a la mode, and then cheese and biscuits. And then cups of tea with a small tray of chocolate mints. I would have fallen asleep on their couch afterward, but I had a pastoral visit to do. Jessie Monkman lived on her own just down the street from Grace and Elf. She was too old and frail to attend church anymore, so I said I would come to her home for tea I thought it safe to assume I knew what that meant. I rolled down the street from Grace and Elf's to Jessie's house and knocked at the door. I could hear the shuffle-thump, shuffle-thump of her walker on the other side. With effort, she unlatched the door and invited me in. 
She thanked me for coming and asked me to sit myself in the parlor while she got a few things ready in the kitchen. I put some sherry there, dear, she said. Go ahead and help yourself. I poured myself a small glass from the decanter she had set on a TV table. Then I settled into a large, overstuffed chair with a lace doily on the headrest. The room was warm, and the aromas of her Sunday dinner wafted through the doorway. I let my head fall back against the doily. I awoke with a start as Jessie called to me from the kitchen. Tea was ready. Two places were set at the table. I went to hold a chair for her, but she insisted that I be seated. She wanted to serve me. She returned to the oven, bent over, and produced a triumphal platter for us. Roast chicken, with peas and potatoes and gravy on the side. I got up and helped her bring tea to the table. She looked exhausted. She said she didn't have much of an appetite herself, but she had raised four children and knew how to feed them. I was to say a blessing and then go ahead myself. For dessert, there would be peach pie. The wider community was part of my healing as well. I became friends with John and Bonnie, a couple from Bradford, a neighboring town, when they asked me to prepare them for marriage. Bonnie had been married before and was at least ten years older than John. They too had stories of pain that cried out for healing. I would go to their home for dinner and conversation. They never actually became members of my congregation, but we would drink wine and share stories and enjoy the simple pleasure of each other's company. One night, John and Bonnie gave me the gift of ecstatic laughter. A bat got into their house and started flying around as we sat at the table. John and I got up to chase it sliding across the floor in our socks, leaping over couches and chairs, with an array of weapons and receptacles from tennis rackets to garbage cans to the blanket that eventually did the job. The place was a wreck when we were done. We laughed and we coughed and we clutched at our sides as the tears rolled down our faces. After I had been in Cookstown for a while, the town began honoring me with the sort of recognition it reserved for real clergy. I was invited to ask the blessing at the annual banquet of the gun club. I offered prayers at the cenotaph on Remembrance Day. I even judged the public speaking contest at the elementary school. If it sounds like an idyllic place that I have idealized in my mind over time, it was, and I have, a rest stop before the world started spinning once again. But the respite would not last long, and I needn't have looked any further for evidence of a gathering storm than my own restless heart. Archdeacon Hill had recommended that I find part-time work when I went to Cookstown. So on Wednesdays, I drove down to Oakville to assist the chaplain at St. Mildred Lightburn School, a private girl school with Anglican affiliations. I was little more than a hired guitar for their midweek Eucharist and a guitar teacher for one of the nuns who ran the school. But when the chaplain left on maternity leave, my responsibilities increased as I tried to fill the void 
along with Chris Ambidge, a teacher there, until a new chaplain could be found. I also became the youth ministry consultant for the Toronto West Deanery. They had been given some money for this purpose. Each week I met with clergy and with lay leaders in a half-dozen different parishes wherever they had aspirations to retain the teenagers and young adults in their congregations. But as a consultant, rather than a youth worker, I never actually met with young people. I wasn't there on evenings or weekends, which is when most youth programs take place. I'm not exactly sure what those who hired me were thinking, but it became evident pretty quickly that this was one of those arrangements that allows everyone to say they were doing something when in reality not much was happening at all. As fall was overtaken by winter, contacts in the deanery dried up and plans for youth programs were stillborn. Gradually, my weekly trips into Toronto had less and less to do with the work I'd taken on and more and more to do with pleasure. I went to see Marion. Marion had been the chaplain up at Moorlands Kawagama the year before me. As I scrambled to orient myself to that job in the weeks leading up to my start date, I had sought her out for whatever advice she could give me. I found her very alluring, pretty in a dark-eyed, dark-haired, Parisian sort of way, quick-witted, highly committed to the church and to the camp, and wickedly funny. I may not have been ready for a new relationship, but being loved felt a lot better than being left. As the summer unfolded, so did Marion and I. She would sometimes come up to the camp on weekends to visit her old friends and to check up on me, in a way. On days off, I would drive the camp van down to the city, sometimes with a load of canoes in tow, to run errands and to spend time with Marion. My new ministry in Cookstown made seeing Marion even easier. My days in the city allowed us to spend a lot of time together. We became familiar with one another's worlds, hers as an office worker and mine as a student minister. Eventually, those worlds began to merge. Marion gave up her basement apartment in the beaches to assume the lease of my downtown apartment on Spadina Avenue. She then began speaking of her own ambition to be ordained in the Anglican Church and to begin her studies, as I had done, at nearby Trinity College. They were fun times, and sometimes sleepless. But something was wrong. My heart tightened every time we took a step closer to each other. We began speaking obliquely of marriage. Flipping through a fashion magazine one lazy Sunday afternoon, Marion mused about the sort of dress she imagined herself wearing on her wedding day. This was getting a little too close for comfort. Still, Marion offered me a safe haven each week. I could step out of the constant spotlight of my little town into the anonymous shadows of the big city, and Marion and I did enjoy each other's company. We even started adding social outings with friends and visits with our respective families to our more personal pastimes. Then, as spring approached, I received the letter I'd been waiting for. I had written a four-page epistle to Archbishop Garnsworthy and to his newly formed College of Bishops, outlining once again all the reasons they should ordain me right away as both deacon and priest, events usually separated by at least a year. 
I explained that this was to serve their interests and those of the parish more fully. It would, for instance, obviate the needless expense and inconvenience of bringing in a guest priest every few weeks to preside at Holy Communion, which I couldn't do as a student, nor even as a deacon. I gathered they all had a pretty good laugh over that one. But they replied with a date for my deaconing. Just my deaconing, period. They also announced their intention to leave me in Cookstown as deacon in charge, which would be my first full-time placement as an ordained minister. Suddenly, my outer world was assuming a distinguishable shape. With ordination now on the books, I felt the future was finally unfolding the way I always hoped it would. I had preparations to attend to. There were meetings with the diocese, investments to procure, and the required pre-ordination retreat to be arranged. But I knew I had inner preparation to do as well. It was time to break things off with Marion. As happily as we got on together, as much wit and laughter as we shared, it was becoming a moral decision. I knew deep down I didn't want to marry her. Things felt different than when I'd gone to see Dave Ward about Joan seven years earlier. My thinking had changed since then. Steeped in Trinity's brew of ambiguity and tension, I was less inclined now to see things as right or wrong, black or white, There were truths hidden in both the dark and the light. I wanted to be in a relationship. There was nothing wrong with that. Marion did, too, so no one was using anyone. We wanted the connection with one another, and we treated each other well. But different parts of me wanted different things. My soul wanted attachment. My spirit wanted clarity. My body wanted sex. But at that point, I wanted, above all, to live an ethical life. I wanted my deeds to match my intentions, and not only because I was about to be ordained. I wanted to make good decisions, adult decisions, decisions I could live with, and I couldn't live with avoiding this one. I drove down to Toronto from Cookstown, literally one dark and stormy night. The wild wind that buffeted the car on the highway the rain that lashed across the windshield and blinding sheets, these matched ominously the turmoil within me. I felt both the absolute rightness of the conversation I had to have with Marion and also its absolute wrongness. Had I led her on? Had I lied to her? Had I allowed certain impressions to linger that were not altogether honest? I could have answered, no, I didn't consciously do any of those things, and I wouldn't have been wrong. But self-interest has a slippery way of avoiding detection. In truth, I suspected I may have been guilty on all counts. The conversation was grueling. It ground on through the night in fits and starts, with apologies and regrets and tears. We held each other, we let each other go, and we held each other again. The truth that it was over tore its claws into both of us, and the hurt would spill out all over again a year later, on the day of my ordination to the priesthood. It would be a long time before Marion and I could be in one another's company without reliving the pain of that night. And when the fog on blows I will be 
still be coming home. I've been reading from Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland, my memoir about loving the church, but in the end, leaving it. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I'm interested in your comments and in your own stories. So you're invited to leave a post on the Facebook site, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Next time, I'll be reading from Chapter 7. I am finally ordained to the diaconate and then to the priesthood, and for a time, it is all I'd ever dreamed it would be. Even more, for there would be mirth mixed in with the ministry. There would also be new possibilities in my personal life, which would stretch me in ways I could not have imagined. So, there's more to come. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too